Hier komen we in vreemd. Red Flag Radio. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. We're recording this podcast on unceded Gadigal land, which always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Later in the episode, we spoke to high school strikers uh, who walked out of their classes across the country in solidarity with Palestine this week. But first, let's talk about Palestine itself. The death toll in Gaza now stands at over 15,000 people, with thousands more wounded and millions starved and left homeless. The brief pause, as it's been called, in, in Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip was agreed to along with a hostage swap. Around 50 Israeli hostages held by Hamas in exchange for some 150 Palestinians held in Israel's military jails. But this has to be seen in the context of Israel having arrested almost 4,000 Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem since October 7, on top of the over 5,000 people already held in custody. Now, many of these people are very young. Many of them are held without charge or trial. Some have been charged with ridiculous things like throwing stones or organising protests. And it's worth mentioning, like, these people are not in a civilian criminal justice system as we would understand it. They have been arrested and detained by the Israeli military and they are subjected to military courts, which are extremely draconian. When the IDF can be bothered to go through the farce of a trial without a jury, they basically always find Palestinians guilty of whatever crime they're being charged with. Um, So since the pause began, Israel has arrested almost as many Palestinians as they have released as part of the deal. So they released 150 Palestinian prisoners and have arrested 133 more. So Israel is basically making sure that this hostage swap doesn't make a dent in the overall number of Palestinians being held captive. And across the world, we're seeing a rise in Islamophobia, um, and that has included violent attacks on Palestinians and Arabs living in the West. Uh, So shortly after October 7, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was stabbed to death in an Islamophobic attack. And more recently, um, in Vermont, uh, three young uh, Palestinian men uh, were shot and wounded by a white racist when he saw them wearing kafirs and speaking a mixture of Arabic and English. And these are only the worst examples of a surge in Islamophobia and anti-migrant, anti-refugee politics around the world. So the far right has really been capitalising on this moment. Yeah, and we've seen a string of far-right and fascist electoral victories across Europe recently. So um, Kiert Wilders made a breakthrough in Dutch politics last week. His party, the Party for Freedom, got the highest number of votes in the recent general election, and they are currently in the process of trying to form government. Now, Wilders, um, Chloe, you will remember this as well, he was a bit of a sensation on the far-right way back in the 2000s. He was seen as um, a a real kind of extremist when there wasn't as much of a far-right around. His main game was then and is now Islamophobia. He's been campaigning for a long time to stop the, quote, Islamization of the Netherlands, uh, to stop the flow of immigration and asylum seekers, and of course, to blame Muslims and migrants for all of the economic and social woes of the Netherlands. He actually called mosques Nazi temples uh, and includes in his program calls to ban the Quran, to ban the headscarf in public buildings. So it probably won't be a surprise to our listeners then that Wilders is a big fan of Israel. He recently said that, quote, Israel is the West's first line of defence. And of course, he means the first line of defence against Muslims and the Arab world. 
He's also suggested that Israel complete their genocide and ethnic cleansing by sending all the Palestinians to Jordan. Um, and we're also seeing, uh, aside from these kinds of electoral victories across Europe, we're seeing violent street thug elements of the far-right movement grow in strength. So, for example, this was quite shocking, but in Ireland, the far-right mobilised for a, a literal race riot against migrants in Dublin, and they were egged on by far-right influencers after a stabbing incident which was framed incorrectly as some kind of Islamist terrorist attack or something to do with uh, migrants. Another in the long line of far-right freaks winning electoral victories is Javier Malay, uh, who just won Argentina's presidential election. Uh, Malay is an ultra-right-wing um, and self-described anarcho-capitalist, um, and his economic program is simple. He summed it up not in words, but by wielding a chainsaw at his election rallies. So he intends to cut everything, and he says that the Argentine economy needs a kind of neoliberal shock therapy. So Argentina has been in the grips of a catastrophic cost-of-living crisis uh, with triple-digit um, inflation. The poverty rate is now at 40%. And uh, he believes that the problem is state spending and has promised to cut almost all social spending, including pensions and poverty programs, and to actually close down the education and health ministries, uh, among others, um, and to you know, privatise everything that isn't nailed down. And one of the most extreme policies he has is to switch the currency uh, to the American dollar in a move that will inevitably cause a recession and drive people uh, into deeper poverty. Um, and it's pretty crazy where he says he got this idea. Um, his cloned dogs uh, that are named after the Chicago boys, the famous neoliberal yeah. economists, um, allegedly somehow gave him uh, this idea to, to dollarize the economy. Smart dogs. Um, yeah. Um, and in response to this program and his election, uh, the stock markets are actually just going gangbusters um, in anticipation of massive profits for capitalist investors. Um, and a widely publicised uh, element of his program, just to show how little he values human life uh, compared to, you know, the market gods, he plans to legalise the sale of human organs. Uh, so on top of all of this savage austerity, Malaya wants to rehabilitate the image of the Argentine dictatorship uh, that fell in 1983. So, you know, culture wars is also a really big part of his program. Uh, and his vice president is probably the most high-profile apologist for the military dictatorship uh, whose family had deep ties to it um, when it was in power. Yeah, pretty bonkers. But it's worth just reflecting on where all of this has come from. Um, this is not just something happening in Argentina, obviously, uh, or in the Netherlands, but across Europe and across the world. This generation of the far right has built out of the crisis of capitalism. Some far right leaders have actually formed government you know, in the last uh, few years, Trump, obviously, Maloney in Italy, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Other far-right and even fascist organisations have been growing and have had some electoral successes. So the uh, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, Le Pen in France, and the Swedish Democrats, obviously, in Sweden. And they are not really Democrats. <laughs> they are a deeply far-right uh, fascistic organisation. But ever since the last deep global economic crisis, the financial crisis, the GFC of 2007 to 2008, there's been political polarisation across the world. On the one hand, there's been resistance to 
economic deprivations, austerity and neoliberalism, things like the Arab Spring, the Occupy Wall Street movement, the, the movement of the squares in Spain, a whole bunch of amazing uh, protest movements uh, and near revolutions that occurred around 2019, and of course the recent rise in strikes in France and the UK. On the other hand, though, the far right have really been able to benefit from the crisis, the crisis of credibility of the neoliberal centre. Yeah, and history doesn't repeat itself exactly, but this is a pretty classic dynamic of capitalism, really. So when economic crises happen, um, that can lead to the discrediting of the political elites. Um, And on the left, there can be the emergence of struggle and even um, socialist organisation. But on the right, there can also be a radicalisation that tries to explain the crisis and pose solutions um, in a way that doesn't threaten capitalism but strengthens its worst aspects, authoritarianism, racism and nationalism. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the question is how did the centre, both the centre-left and the centre-right, discredit themselves? Well, in the wake of the global financial crisis, the response of political elites was to bail out banks, to cut social spending on health, welfare, pensions, public sector wages, etc. That's That's what austerity is. And an example of this is Obama, uh, who, you know, as American president, gave trillions of dollars to the banks. In Europe, uh, they did the same thing and the effects were horrendous. So governments bailed out banks and then they paid back the debts that they had incurred with austerity packages that destroyed people's livelihoods. So these were called the sovereign debt crises and institutions like the European Union and the International Monetary Fund demanded that these cuts be made. So, for example, in Greece, which, you know, is a first world country, but hospitals had to slash their budgets by as much as 50% in this period. And they ran low on basic supplies, basic medical supplies like syringes. And the ultimate symbol of Greece's austerity in this period was the smoky smog that uh, hung over Athens because people had resorted to burning wood inside their homes because heating bills were so high. And this led as well to people dying of smoke inhalation. And that is the human cost of this period of austerity um, throughout Europe. Yeah, and in response to this actual social crisis that was, you know, produced by uh, this, you know, economic crisis, The far right really blamed migrants, refugees, and in particular Muslims. So recent years they've expanded on their repertoire and have used, you know, all sorts of culture words, um, you know, to build their profile, um, particularly sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and, you know, since COVID, the ridiculous conspiracy theories about vaccines, hostility to any government measures uh, to um, combat the pandemic. But particularly after the global financial crisis, the main thing that fed the far right, particularly in Europe, uh, was racism. Um, And in some ways, they were really swimming with the tide. So mainstream political parties had already made a big turn to Islamophobia uh, during the war in terror in the 2000s and the 2010s. But they also found it politically useful to blame migrants for the social crisis of capitalism. So crumbling infrastructure, a lack of housing, overcrowded hospitals and the like. Um, Obviously, for them, much better to blame migrants and refugees than to accept that the neoliberal economic policies of the political centre had been the things that were destroying people's lives. Um, But the far right have really pushed these, uh, you know, politics that are really the mainstream politics um, of capitalism far, far further to the extreme. So, for example, you know, creating panics uh, and demonising migrants as rapists, criminals and terrorists that are, you know, bent on destroying Western civilization. Yeah, I think it's important to say that, like, even though the far right are, we're saying they're kind of this product of 
capitalist crisis and the collapse of the the centre sort of mainstream parties, that they're still intensely pro-capitalist, even if they can tap into genuine disillusionment born out of the crisis of capitalism. Their role, I think, is really to channel that anger away from anything that might threaten the institutions of capitalism and towards scapegoats, Um, you know, migrants, refugees, Muslims, whoever it happens to be. They amplify really the worst elements of capitalism, the cruelest methods of social control and division. So Git Wilders, for example, one of the ways that he campaigned in the recent election was by saying that the housing crisis in the Netherlands is the fault of migrants and can be solved by basically just stopping migration completely. Uh, He called the migration wave an asylum tsunami. Um, But like here in Australia, the actual issue with housing in the Netherlands is not anything to do with migrants or refugees. It's the private property market and the landlords who profit from it. It's the selling off of public housing. It's the fact that wages are stagnating or decreasing and so people can't afford their rents and so on. The really worrying rise of the far right has led many people on the left to rally around the centre and around this idea that you can hold back the growth of the far right by propping up the political parties that created this crisis, I think is actually a real dead end. So Wilders, for example, um, back in the day, um, was considered persona non grata. Um, You know, he was, you know, rejected by a lot of the political mainstream um, of the Netherlands. He was actually sentenced uh, twice in uh, court in the Netherlands uh, for inciting discrimination. I remember, um, you know, calls and that were taken up in some countries to like ban him when he uh, tried to visit uh, countries overseas. So many mainstream Dutch parties, when Wilders was first on the scene, uh, refused to ever do cut any deals with him. Uh, but increasingly, as he's gotten closer and closer to power, and now that his uh, party represents the biggest party in the Netherlands. They're very open to helping him form government. Um, The liberal media have also, you know, more or less made peace with him um, and recently nicknamed nicknamed him Gert Milders uh, because he's supposedly watered down his program. And let's be real, this is a program that still formally includes bans to... uh, This is a program that still formally uh, calls to ban the Quran uh, and describes it as equivalent to Mein Kampf. As well as the capitalist class accepting that they can still make money under a far-right populist government, the far-right parties tend to move, as they move towards political power, tend to moderate themselves a bit, Uh, mostly in the direction of just adopting positions of their own ruling classes on key issues, issues like foreign policy, on their attitude to the EU and things like that. Yeah, and it's really clear that the centre are no defence against the far-right. And often they end up actually implementing the far-right policies um, without the far-right even having to win government. Like You just look right now um, at Albanese and Biden cheering on a genocide. Like, this is what is supposed to be the lesser evil. Yeah. And Labor's a kind of a good example of just how uh, treacherous the centre can be. Like, they implemented, or the the centre-left, I guess, you know, they implemented Australia's draconian refugee policy that became the explicit inspiration for a lot of the far right around Europe. So these ideas about turning back boats, about deporting people back to their uh, country of origin, about imprisoning people in third-party countries, these policies are basically the dream now of Europe's fascists, and yet it's what our centre-left government actually implemented. So the centre-right and centre-left, I think, aren't lesser evils in the long run. So, you know telling people to vote for Biden, you don't really end up with a lesser evil. Um, They will always defend the system and the status quo. 
We need a radical alternative. Only socialist politics can provide a genuine alternative to the far right and to the system that breeds it. So our politics, socialist ideas, are about ordinary people challenging the rich who are really responsible for inequality and crisis instead of blaming the oppressed or settling for the lesser evil. Next up, we have some interviews with school strikers uh, who walked out of school uh, recently for Palestine. So in Melbourne, they organised the biggest school strike um, in the world and they stand in a really awesome tradition of school strikes against imperialism. Our Okay, I'm here with Audra. Audra is one of the organisers of the school walkout for Palestine that happened in Melbourne that sparked off other walkouts of a similar nature across the country, including here in Sydney. Welcome, Audra. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey. So good to have you on the podcast. Yeah, no worries. So, I mean, we're watching a genocide and these massacres unfold on our screens in Gaza. So what's it like? What's it been like being in school while all this is happening? I assume they're not like teaching you about what's happening in Palestine or why it's happening. Has that been upsetting to you and your schoolmates, like this enforced silence at school around such an important issue? Yeah, it was a pretty big shock. Um especially at my schools, being that it's quite, um, like, politically um, progressive. Uh, but, yeah, as soon as I started um, putting up posters for just, like, the Sunday rallies, they were, like, they completely took them down. And I had a, re- I had a talk to my um, principal about it, and he was, like, didn't like the use of the word fighting for Gaza. He said it was too violent. Um, he was really, really patronizing towards me. It was like, you have to be able to understand both sides of the history and the extent of the history. And I was like, why are you like assuming that I don't understand this? Um, while he like (laughs) cradled both of my hands while he talked to me, it was like so bizarre. And it was just, yeah, it ended up being like just going to school and just having to sit and listen to just some like, yeah, just bullshit. Like it was. It was really upsetting and, um, yeah, and then having, like, a little, like, pro-Israel teacher at my school taking down my posters and then, like, that was okay. Um, yeah, it was it was very yeah. upsetting. Um, we, we pushed past and managed to sort of silence them and they ended up stop taking, like, stop um, taking our posters down, mm-hmm. which was really good. Yeah. So why did you organize the the school strike? Like why did you think it was important for school students in particular to come out in support of Palestine? Yeah, um so when we started up uh basically just the organization of school students for Palestine, we started doing the Saturday meetings and um I think we were organizing to do like a sort of magazine, which I thought was a really cool idea and um yeah, and it was um really fun in that, but I was um sort of felt like I I was still really angry and I felt like I just couldn't sort of sit and just make this magazine and then call it a day like I felt like of the extent of like this genocide that's happening like we couldn't just sort of make this zine and then just you know still go to school and um I was actually learning about the anti-apartheid um movement in my modern history class and we were talking about like the Soweto um like massacre and all that stuff and the actual yeah the students walking out and I sort of was like wait like what if we actually did a school walkout and um at the start it was only going to be around like a couple people from my school and then thanks to the media they just completely blew it up which is great 
um, and got it really big. And yeah, I guess it was just, it was really important because, um, yeah, heaps of students just like, I remember them like talking to them and they're like, like they just wanted to create some like mass disruption, especially in school to sort of bring attention to this and sort of break the silence that was, that our school was, um, our schools were doing, like they were just being completely silent on the issue and telling us that it was too, um, complicated for us to learn or discuss. Well, can you tell us about the media coverage for people who didn't see it? How did the media react to the, um, the threat of a school walkout? Not well, not well at all. Um, it was, um, it was really interesting, a lot of it. Um, I mean, the first, like, interviews that I had with Seven and Nine News, um, they were, like, really nice to us at the start before the interview happened, and then as soon as, like, the cameras were on, we're like, so what do you think about, like, the Hamas attacks on October 7th? I was like, okay. So, like, a lot of the sort of mainstream media is doing at the moment, just really trying to paint this sort of pro-Palestine movement as sort of pro-Hamas and um it was it was it it was really hard to because I've obviously pretty I'm very new to the sort of like um yeah having to deal with the media so um learning to sort of how to go about it because they you know you'd say one thing and then they'll sort of you know get you from there and um yeah so I just every time we sort of had like a Hamas question which happened a lot we'd just be like this isn't about Hamas like this is about us supporting like the innocent Palestinians. Um, yeah, the media, um, but they actually have been really good um, in terms of publicising this, um, which I think was a bit dumb off. Do you think that contributed to to how big the protests end up, ended up being, the coverage that you got in the media? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, it was already getting big through just what um, our students were doing and posting in schools and sort of spreading the word of it. But as soon as it hit the media, like our account on Instagram, I think like, yeah, got hundreds of followers off it. And um, yeah, like it was really dumb on their behalf. It just meant like we got way more involved. Not the intended effect. Yeah. Well, I mean, there seems like before the protest happened, there were a bunch of attempts to intimidate you out of protesting. So there was the media coverage. There was a petition of thousands of uh, people, uh, the thousands of people signed on to authored by one of the main uh, Zionist organizations in Australia, trying to get the government to crack down on you guys. And the government did um, basically warn against uh, students attending the protest. So the the new Victorian premier had a few choice words to say uh, about this. So what was that like? Like how did students defy this kind of wall to wall crackdown on your right to peacefully protest yeah I think it actually um also worked in our favor because it meant students were just insanely more angry because um yeah Mm. like so many so many people you know are able to protest like um something peacefully like and um like you think about that they don't really have much of an issue with students walking out for climate change like they didn't have that much crackdown on that. So it's like sort of, I guess, really clear to students. So it's like it's not the issue of like missing school that they care about. It's actually the issue that we're fighting for that they um, don't like. Uh, so I think I, I think a couple, like definitely it was like a couple of students were intimidated by that and didn't come. But um, 
it definitely helped in making students more angry and more wanting to walk out, which I think was great. So what would you say to the argument that proliferated in the media that school, and you said your, your principal said this as well, that basically school kids are too young to understand the complex issues, thousands of years of history going on in Israel and Palestine. What would you say to that? <laughs> well, school is, is about educating people. And I feel like if they actually did care about this issue, then they would be educating students, which they're not. Like if anyone's at fault for us being so-called not educated on this, it's like theirs. Um, but it is just a load of bullshit. Like, I mean, I've been educated for a very long time on this due to sort of like, um, yeah, my family being so political. Um, but it's not as complex as they make it out to be. It's really not like, it's like, obviously it's, a, it's has, there's, it's a really dense in history, but it's very easy to understand. Yeah. It's oppressor versus oppressed, isn't it? And we've seen this in so many places throughout history, some of which you learn about in high school. Like it's so ironic that you're learning about um, the apartheid system in South Africa and then not allowed to draw the obvious parallels to what we're seeing in Palestine and Gaza and the West Bank um, or, you know, all of the other colonial monstrosities throughout the history of, of capitalism that are very similar. I actually yeah. got um, marked down on my uh, exam that I had on the anti-apartheid movement for linking it to Palestine, which they said I can't oh remember. Oh God! I can't remember what the like uh, the thing was, but they like called it like a like a rele- an irrelevant source or something. Like I was like, it was quite um, yeah, quite funny. There you go. There is um, extreme bias even in <laughs> in marking school assignments and essays that's appalling um well how did the I mean you've talked a little bit about this but how did the schools themselves react like the principals and and the kind of the school bureaucracy but also staff and teachers like have you had any support um amongst the kind of general disapproval yeah uh we actually had quite a lot of support from teachers but there was a big thing of um the sort of school board warning teachers, like, because, you know, teachers aren't allowed to have an p- opinion, really. Um, like, they weren't, um, they're only now, after the referendum, allowed to wear, like, political T-shirts supporting yes. They weren't allowed to during the referendum. Right. Um, so, yeah, teachers are really, they're not allowed to, but uh, heaps silently were like, you know, if you guys um, want to walk out of this class, like, I'll just tell you what you need to do like so you can catch up later but you all should go like that sort of thing um I had one teacher who has <laughs> I, um he's he's told me not to really say his name or anything because he doesn't want to lose his job but he's mm. been sort of giving me insight on what the principal and school board's plans are around cracking down on us which has been really helpful um Mm-hmm. yeah he's been great he's just really really been wanting to help as much as he can and yeah my English teacher who's Irish has been like one of the biggest supports she mm. is has been giving out all the teachers like little watermelon badges which um she can't anymore but yeah. was doing for a while which is really nice yeah so teachers have been great but they've also been really uh silenced um even more um than students sort of yeah it's appalling yeah. Yeah. So much for free speech. You can't say yeah. any of your basic opinions as a teacher. It's terrible. Okay, so one of the responses I saw, and I wanted to get your yeah. take on this, 
So here in Sydney, you might not have seen it, the education minister said, quote, one of the most important ways you can change the world is to get an education. Therefore, you need to go to school. And she was really urging everyone to, to go to school. What would you say to that? Um, no. No, I, I disagree. Uh, <laughs> well, clearly, you didn't go to yeah. school. <laughs> no, it's just, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of statements like that, like, you know, the most powerful thing you can do on November 23rd is like stay in school and attend class. And um, just everyone just heard that and was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to not. Like it was like all those statements that came out, they just really like encouraged people to just do the opposite. Um, yeah. The one about um, the way you can change the world is stay in school and have an education. Yeah. I mean, we all, go to school I didn't I didn't find it to be a particularly earth-shattering world-changing experience um and I mean we're seeing just how hard it is to try to change the world when you're at school by how much they're cracking down on free speech around Palestine exactly. you know for teachers and and students yeah and I was just gonna it it's really sh- like shone a light to students that um they sort of only really encourage um free speech when it's something that looks good for the school or something that the school yeah supports but it's all sort of for their image I guess um so with my school they're incredibly um encouraging around um yeah they're actually like supporting aboriginal rights and um the aboriginal community um and when I told them I was like well you're supporting like uh you, you know you're basically um supporting an, a community that has faced and still faces a genocide what we're doing is the exact same we are supporting like uh, the Palestinian community which has is going and has been going through a genocide what is the difference and like they got really angry when I like would um basically uh compare the two they yeah sort of would say it's not the same thing like it was yeah so I think that's the other thing that's been good that students have been educated that the school only really supports free speech when it's something that looks good for them. Yeah, when it's actually a, a controversial thing where you have to go up against the major institutions of Australian capitalism, as any pro-Palestine supporter does, they, yeah, they shirk their responsibility to be progressive or whatever. Um, I totally agree. Um, so what was it like at the protest and, you know, how many people did you get? What was the atmosphere there? Um, the atmosphere was amazing. It was, it was, I guess, yeah, it was really emotional for me um, at the start of it. Just like, I always do this every, like at the Sunday rally when I did a speech, I just get really emotional beforehand and it's not good to start a speech trying to, trying to not cry in it. but. Um, yeah, this happened at the strike as well, just, like, because we literally had no clue as how many people were going to be there. Um, like, it was it was so hard to, yeah, have, a like, a prediction of it. Um, so when, like, when I was there and people just started keeping, like, uh, piling in, we just thought we were going to sort of be able to all fit in the foyer. And then, um, yeah, ended up like we couldn't even fit on like the steps and ended up having to go into the intersection and that was just like amazing in itself that we couldn't even fit like in Flinders Street like we actually had to stop the trams and stuff for how many people that were there and 
yeah I, I yeah so I did this speech that sort of started it off and um it was such a yeah everyone was so angry in the crowd like it was just anything I would say that you know they'd either clap or just like yell shame and it was it was it I think yeah it was happy in the sense of there was so much solidarity and it felt really special but everyone was so angry and so upset and um yeah it was amazing to see that in action as well and um it was really hard to control everyone like we only ended up having Catherine as a marshal so one marshal for the whole protest and um I like um uh Amaya and myself another um organizer for the school for the strike um we both ended up having to be marshals and it was like you literally could not control like any of the kids that were there you think of teenagers like they're already you can't control them in like a school environment let alone at a protest where they're like just absolutely um yeah filled with rage and anger and um but I think it's what it needed like I think the strike needed that chaos and it needed that disruption for everyone to see how angry and how um how sick of students were from being silenced um yeah I mean we ended up just running through the streets and running through Melbourne Central so it was incredibly special to sort of yeah be able to see that yeah yeah I felt the same energy I got to attend the one in Sydney and it was just like the most impassioned angry loud protest I've been to in a long time yeah it was and I think partly probably what contributed is these days leading up to it just students getting slandered in the press and told by every person you know from the mainstream media to their principals you know some probably for many of them their parents as well told they couldn't do this they couldn't actually have a say they didn't understand it they were too stupid they were too young so you just saw this like outpouring of of passion when they actually got to the the protest and and they had defied um all of these institutions and people so yeah it was wonderful it's one of the reasons i think actually young people will change the world not by sitting in their schools uh but by doing the kinds of things that you guys have done so one last question audra like What's the plan for the future? Um, hopefully this is not just one protest and you're done, but, you know, this is the beginning of the kind of school organising that we saw around the Iraq war, that people did against the Vietnam war. Um, yeah, what are the plans for the future? Yeah, um, well, we're not going to stop until, um, yeah, well, I, I hope that we do not stop until we have achieved um, you know, all occupation out of Palestine, all um, sort of Australian ties to supporting Israel um, ended, yeah, basically just justice for Palestine, um, which means um, we're planning a strike for the 7th of December, which is coming up very soon. Um, and this will be, I think, even a bigger turnout since a lot of high school students weren't actually um, will have finished school, so they won't actually be walking out of school, but they'll still be striking. Um, so hopefully the students that um, were told that they like, can't leave school can actually just go because they're not actually leaving school, they're just leaving their houses. Um, 
and yeah and then next year when we go back to school strike again and then all over the holidays I'm planning to keep organizing keep getting people to join the school students for Palestine organization just all that stuff Awesome. Well, well done for defying all of the the crackdown and the people who told you not to and making that protest happen. And I hope to see many more of them in the future. Thanks for joining me, Audra. Thank you so much for having me. The day of the I'm here at the high school student strike for Palestine in Sydney. Hundreds of kids have walked out of school across the country to stand in solidarity with Palestine. Uh, I'm here with Rex, who has been organising at his school against the war on Gaza uh, and is actually going to speak at the rally today as well. Um, So, Rex, the mainstream media have gone apoplectic about these protests. They've been blaming them on professional provocateurs, outside agitators. Uh, I saw one journalist had a child psychologist on to say that children don't have fully formed prefrontal cortexes yet and therefore can't understand what's happening in Gaza. What do you think? Do you understand what's happening in Gaza? Yeah, I'd probably say it's pretty easy to understand when a genocide's going on. Um, But yeah, the media's been absolutely horrific. Um, But I suppose it's just kind of expected when, you know, you have a bunch of independent, you know, free-thinking high schoolers, you can tell when something horrific is going on. Um, and even just on like social media, a lot of teenagers are just very, very well aware of what's going on. And um, it's very promising, actually, despite all the lies the media is peddling. Yeah. What's it been like at school amongst like your fellow students? Are people angry about this, following it? Is it hard to concentrate on classes when you're <laughs> witnessing a genocide uh, happening in Palestine? Yeah, well, a lot of people have been talking about it because, you know, it's obviously, like, all over the news and all over social media. And so people have been very aware of it and people have actually been quite fired up about it. Um, Unfortunately, school, though, has been quite stifling for a lot of this discussion. Like, the education department has essentially put out an email to all the schools, all the teachers, saying that, um, like, no discussion about this or no, like mention of the strikes or anything uh, should be allowed to happen on school grounds to keep it as a supposed like neutral venue for education or whatever um, when that's just like just not how school works school is supposed to be like a, a place for discussion and stuff and also basically everyone knows what's going on and like has something to say about it so yeah yeah, there's just a complete disconnect between what students are thinking and what the education department's saying as well. I'm here with three high school protesters from Bankstown Girls. Uh, What are your names? My name is Jana, Mary, Alyssa. Alyssa. All right guys so why are you here protesting today? We believe that the Palestinians deserve freedom and they should get their land back and everything that's happening to them should absolutely just stop. We don't support genocide or anti-Semitism, none of that. We don't support that at all. And we're here today to show that. For our brothers and sisters, yes. And it's been horrendous to see, I think, the mainstream media, the way they have smeared protesters. Uh, They've said that high schoolers, you know, can't possibly understand this complex issue, so why are you out protesting? What do you think? Do you think it's a complex issue? No, so many students are here today in support of Palestine. You know, it's not very complex at all. It's very understandable. It's out there. We understand it and we feel for them and we're here today to stop that. Yeah. So what has it been like being at school? You know, you're watching this horrific genocide on unfold and 
and you just have to sit there in class. What does it feel like? Like we can't even talk about it at school. We can't express our feelings. If you if you're from Palestine, you can't even say you're from Palestine. You can't support it. You can't wear the tiniest badge. Not nothing. It's really bad. So they've been disciplining people for yeah. their support for Palestine. How have they done that? Warnings of suspension. You know, suspension. yeah. All that stuff. Tensions. If they see you wearing like a Palestinian flag, they kick you out of class if you talk about it. Yeah. That's appalling. Oh my god. And what have you guys have been obviously defying that? That's very brave of you. So what is what have you guys been trying to do at school to oppose this? Around the school, like we're sticking Palestine stickers around the school walls and everything in our classrooms, in our history classrooms. Yeah. Everywhere. We just you know we talk about it in class. Even if we get in trouble, we still talk about it. That's so brave. Well, one day you guys, other kids, you know, generations uh, from now will be learning about what you guys did in school because you're on the right side of history. Well done. Thank you. So this protest isn't just for high school students. There's also university students here who have been helping organise it. Uh, And I'm here talking to Yaz, who is the Student Representative Council's Education Officer at Sydney University. Yaz, what's it been like? You've been organising protests over the last few weeks um, on campuses. Totally, yeah. Well, we've had big crowds at Sydney Uni, uh, crowds of like 100 plus uh, in the last few weeks of semester to support justice for Palestine. The other thing we've been doing is rallying outside Albanese's office uh, each week. You know, I think people are understandably extremely angry that the Australian government is just totally backing up uh, Israel's genocide in Gaza. Mm. What would you say to, there's been this like absolute media barrage against uh, this protest and many others, you know, calling them anti-Semitic, violent, uh, now saying that the, you know, high school students don't have brains that can make decisions like this to come out on protest. Yeah, what would be your response to all of that stuff? I think it's all slander. Uh, you know, they are just backing up what the government is doing, which is supporting Israel. They are totally complicit in all of the lies uh, that Israel is trying to tell uh, to, um, uh, like, cover for what they're actually doing, which is massacring thousands of people uh, in Gaza. On today's protest, I mean, the New South Wales Education Minister came out uh, the other day and said that high school students should stay in their lane. uh, And, (laughs) you know, that, yeah, they're too young and naive uh, to know what's going on in the complex uh, geopolitical situation in the Middle East. I think high schoolers are plenty smart enough to understand uh, that when genocide is taking place, it's your duty to stand on the right side of history. So it's really good to see people out today. Okay, I'm here with Eva, who is a high school student and she is chairing this protest today. So my first thing I have to ask Eva is about the appalling media coverage of this protest. I promise we won't be like that on Red Flag Radio. Uh, But they've been saying that this protest was organised by outside agitators, that you guys don't even have uh, properly formed prefrontal cortexes to even know what you're doing or understand the situation in Palestine. What would you say to all of that? crap. Well, high schoolers are fully aware of the atrocities of this genocide at the moment and we don't want to just stand around while our government supports the slaughter of now 7,000 children. If they are young enough to be bombed, we are, are, sorry, old enough to be bombed, then we are old enough to come out here and protest. The media want to paint it like we're too stupid or young to understand when our government is actually supporting war crimes, but we know that this is wrong and we have to live in this world, so we're going to fight for a better world. Yeah, amazing. What's it been like at school? You guys are, you know, going and doing your classes and sitting around with your schoolmates and this genocide, like you said, of thousands of children, men, women and children is going on um, in Palestine. What's it been like? 
It's actually extremely appalling. The entire school is trying to keep this neutral stance. None of the teachers are allowed to talk about it. Tons of students just want to focus on their studies or whatever. But there are some of us that can see that this is just totally messed up and that we can't just sit in class and pretend it's not happening because yeah. there's actual people being slaughtered. This is such an awful moment in history that if we just stand around, then nothing's going to change. Uh, so what's the number one reason why you're out here today? Well, I just think it's so important to get young people and high schoolers involved in the global movement for a free Palestine. We've seen high schoolers across the world walk out and demand an end to the genocide, including in Melbourne yesterday. Um, and so I want students in Sydney to be involved in that fight. So what are the demands of this protest? We demand an end to the genocide, an end to the siege on Gaza, an end to the bombing and an end to our government's complicity in these war crimes. If you're a high schooler, you should definitely go on strike. There are more strikes coming up uh, in solidarity with Palestine. The last round of strikes were a massive success. I know more are coming up. So, you know, go on Instagram, check out the Students for Palestine or the High School Students for Palestine organising group uh, near you. There are, you know, groups organising in every major city. And um, don't stay in school, kids. Yeah. School sucks. If you're an old loser and you've already graduated high school, then get involved in the the adult um, leg of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. So there are Palestine Solidarity Groups uh, around the country and we've linked all of those in the show notes as well. Uh, and it's really important, I think, that we keep up the movement of solidarity with Palestine and don't let the, the horror and the suffering there uh, go unchallenged. So get to a protest near you. Um, they're happening every weekend in every major city. But until next time, we have a world to win. <laughs> <laughs>